Hello and welcome to another episode of A Stab in the Dark, the UK TV podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama, that drags them kicking and screaming into a badly lit and overheated interview room and grills them like bacon rashers in strict contravention of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. My name's Mark Billingham and today we're back on the road, this time in the BBC's swanky media city in Salford, where I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by two of the most respected talents in British TV crime drama, award-winning screenwriter Danny Brocklehurst and one of the most recognisable actresses on our TV screens, Mianna Buring. We'll be chatting with Danny and Mianna about their careers, about secrets and lies, about corsets and fake baby bumps, and we'll be talking about their brand new crime drama on BBC One, In the Dark which I have nothing to do with at all. No siree, nothing whatsoever. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. So, Danny, Miana, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, Hello. For, hello. hello. And it, we're filming this in the middle of summer, and it is a hot one here in Manchester today. So with that in mind, before we get to the serious stuff, very important question, what's your ice cream of choice, Danny? Oh. Didn't know you were going to start that way. Oh, yeah? Going to throw the hard ones yeah, at you first. I'd, I'd probably rum and raisin, something like rum and, that. But, I mean, like a lolly? A lolly of choice? A if, lolly of yeah, choice? Yeah, I mean, you know, a Mivy, a Zoom. What you? Yeah, something like something that's got a sort of, um, maybe a bit of ice cream in, in the middle. What do you think about so that? What oh, those, like oh. those twisty ones, what are they called? Yeah, they're you quite know, good. Yeah, like they're like twisty. Oh, what like are they called? Twisters. The twisty? Twisters. <laughs> yeah, that's the and one. There's one. One of the ones that I've got, like bubblegum in. Do you remember those from when you were a kid? Like, yeah, you'd no, get I'm not having that. Special no, not, not into that. Not having that, but rum and raisin would be your flavour. Your flavour of choice? Uh, chocolate. Chocolate. Yeah. Okie dokie. All right, well, I'm going to throw pistachio into the mix, just to be con- just to be controversial. Um now, just to set the scene, we are here at Media City uh, to promote the show In the Dark. Uh, we've got a screening to attend, Q&As to circumnavigate, and then hopefully a lot of drinks to drink. So I want to talk about In the Dark later on. Uh, but before that, I want to talk to both of you, both of you uh, a bit about your amazing careers, because incredibly varied, and you're both incredibly prolific. Do you both have very strong work ethics? Yeah, no, you got a strong work ethic? Mm. Yeah, actually, I think so. Yeah, I think. I'm, I've always kind of said it, and I still feel it. I've... I am. I think graft is really important. I think it's, um, and it's probably as I've got older, I've realised that 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 was instilled in me quite early on. And I didn't think of it as a strong work ethic. I just thought that's what you did. But now I, I think more and more I realise that it, yeah, I'm I'm quite happy to work, roll up my sleeves, and I'm never even if it's not acting, I'm never not doing something. Um, right. Actually, that's not true. They, I sort of I work and work and work, and then I end up having a complete collapse then, for like three days. Then just nothing. Then I do nothing. But then literally, like I, I'm comatose. I do not move. I don't, you know, I sort of have everything around me that I need, and sort of reachable distance, and I don't move for three okay, days. Okay, so lots of cushions, Exa- TV, yeah, remote control, absolutely, all that exactly, kind of food, stuff. Uh, the whole lot. Yeah. Okay, Danny, what about you? You're a you're a grafter. You're a grafter. You are. Yeah, I think I think you've got to be as a writer. Otherwise, if you don't kind of set yourself down every day and try and write then you're just going to start to muck around and you know like now at this time where you watch the tennis or you know go for a bath or sort of you know have, have a nice bit of lunch you know so it's so, so unless you kind of you know unless you really think oh god I've got to do you know I've got to hit so many pages a day or or, or, or whatever you know I do like a deadline the panic of a deadline is is very helpful but then there's this there is this ludicrous idea that people have about writers that it that it isn't quite a job that we all swan about waiting for the muse to descend and these ideas to come on fairy dust. But it, it is just about putting your ass in the chair and going to work, isn't it? I think it is really, yeah. I think it is. Um, 
And I think you can, I think you, you, I have encountered writers who do that thing. Oh, well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm just waiting for the right moment. You think, well, you good, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a regular job in that, you know, you don't have to work office hours. I mean, I do tend to keep reasonably sensible hours, but you know, there are some nights where you're still working at, you know, all kinds of hours to get things done and, and, you know, having to do, you know, do things that are kind of like out of the norm. And, and yeah. I think that's just part and parcel of the business and you've got to accept that. And then other days I will just, you know, bunk off halfway through the day and <laughs> go and do something pleasant. There has to be this kind of, you know, there has to be discipline. There does have to be discipline. It's not, yeah, it's yeah. not airy-fairy and arty-farty, is it? You've got to get things done and no, move I mean, things certainly along. not television writing. I think, I think novel writing is more like that. <laughs> is it? I believe so, yeah. Uh, Okie dokie. Yeah, no, I do. I sit about all day in a sort of silk dressing gown like Noel Coward. Uh, and dictate my novels to a to a, a small team of elves. Do not burst this bubble for me because that's how I believe you write. Oh, is yeah? it? Okay, you hold on to that. Okay, hold on yes. to that. Good. Um, now, Danny, there's a very we're here in Manchester. Very strong sense of Manchester in your work. So, so let's talk a bit about the city. What, what's special about this place? I mean, I know it's your part of the world, but but why why is it why is it so great to write about? Um, yeah, I don't know. I and mean, I suppose for me, it's it's home and. Um, the, always kind of you know always has been I've always lived lived here so you know you, you kind of that that kind of seeps into you um especially as a sort of proud Mancunian and I think I think I naturally kind of when I think of a new idea I naturally think well it'll be set in Manchester then you know until otherwise um somebody tells me you know well would, like the next thing I'm doing is set in Northern Ireland um but not for any reason other than we did it through BBC Northern Ireland and, and we thought it might be good to, to do to do a family drama set there. You know? Yeah. But but it could, in my mind, when I started it, it was set in Manchester. You know? Even if there are scenes that take place on beaches yeah. and things, you're like, yeah, Manchester, that's, yeah, the, yeah, place. Yeah. that's the place. But I think it depends what you're doing. I mean, if, if, you're doing, if you're doing a show like In the Dark or if you're doing a show like The Driver that I did a couple of years ago, then there's something, there's something very useful about a city like Manchester because it's a good enough size to be a proper major city with major things going on. But it's not kind of, you know, it's not unwieldy like London. So you can kind of, <laughs> can kind of yeah. use the centre and you can, you can have people sort of bumping into each other in a, in a sort of reasonably credible way. And as we discovered making In the Dark, which we'll talk about later, you don't have to go too far out of Manchester, get into areas that are a lot more rural. And, you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, now, yeah exactly. You, your sort of big break, I suppose, uh, came about via, via Paul Abbott. Tell us a little bit about how that happened, and I presume you were a fan of his work already. Yeah, I was. I was a massive fan of his, his work, um, and, and, and Jimmy McGovern, um, but yeah, I was very fortunate, really. I mean, I was trying to, I was trying to break into the industry. Um, I'd, I'd written for theatre and for radio at this point, and I was trying to break into television. And I was working as a journalist for a magazine called City Life. It's like Time Out. Um, and they said, oh, do you want to go and interview Paul Abbott? <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> um, so I went to his house, and, and Paul is quite a sort of... You know, we were talking earlier about writers who like to be distracted. So Paul was very happy to be distracted mm -hmm. by this interview. And then before I knew, once we'd done the interview, then he's getting the wine out. And one thing, you know, y y the conversation flows on. And I thought, oh, sod it. I'm going to say, hey, I'm a writer. You know, so, um, yeah. So I, I forced him into reading a script. And luckily, I don't know what he thought of it, but luckily he passed it on to Nicholas Schindler at Red Productions. And they liked it enough to invite me to... Um, 
to pitch for uh, a show they were doing at the time called Clocking Off. Yeah. And yeah, and I got the I got the job, and that was the break. And so yeah, I owe both of them um, an, an enormous. So if you know, if uh, Paul ever hadn't got the wine out. It might exactly. never have happened. Yeah, You'd have just if, done the interview and toddled off home again. Well, that's what would normally happen, but luckily Paul likes to drink, so it was, uh, <laughs> it was happy days. And then you end up working on Shameless. What was that like? Yeah, well, we did three shows together, me and Paul, but Shameless was, I mean, Shameless was incredible because uh, it was obviously at the time a massive, you know, th- those first two or three series were, were, were massive. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever work on a show like that again, really. It, would, it just really hit something. It hit a nerve in... in with the public, and it was a huge hit. We won all kinds of awards. You know, it was a real roller coaster ride. I mean, it was a very difficult show to make because you always felt you had to top what you'd just done, and that gets harder and harder when you're dealing with the Gallaghers. But yeah. uh, <laughs> and you're not talking about Nolan Liam. No, no, no. So yeah, it was it was a br- it was a brilliant show, but it was a very very hard show, particularly once we got to series three because you know we'd we'd already thrown a lot of stuff. That's it. I mean, obviously, it ran for years and years and years, but I, I, I personally felt it, it declined in the end in its quality. Yeah, what well, should have stopped earlier? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really hard to keep things going. I mean, it, I think you can do it for a few years, but then you know, tell me the show that's still amazing on series eight. You know? ah, well, it's a, it's a very tricky thing. There are plenty of writers of series novels who go through exactly that thing when you kind of go, it might be time to stop, but they get persuaded to. They, I'm saying they, not, not including himself. You know, get, Who are you, these people? Right, well, you know, plenty of novelists write two or three books too many. Yeah. You know, and you and you like to be the put. You'd like to think you'll know when it's time to stop, but you know, and there's a successful show. And anyway, so Miana, you've been involved in some you know huge movies and TV shows, franchises, pretty much. Did you have a a, a break, a big break along the kind of lines that Danny was talking about? And did it involve wine? Uh, I'm sure. Wine was involved, yes. Um, I sort of, yeah, I, I kind of did. My, I think for me it was two things um, in conjunction. One was Ben Wheatley, who um, I had done, I had done a, I had done a sort of TV, BBC uh, weird thing with CGI, um, a kind of uh, sketch show with CGI um, that I'd auditioned for and met him and done along with Neil Maskell and Michael Smiley and Emma Fryer, I think was in that as well um and um and then years later he called us all up and said um come and read the script and we realized quickly that he'd written all the parts in the script for us and that script was kill list um so we did this quirky weird dark little film um, a fantastic film which, yeah. which if anybody's is, listening yeah, and has not is, seen kill list yeah. you need to see kill List. which is yeah which kind of blew all of our minds while we were doing it um uh, but you know, again, you never know that anything's going to be f- received in the way it, Kill List was. You know, you can't you can't anticipate that. Um, and so that came out at the same time while we were filming it. I had put myself on tape um, randomly for um, one of the new parts in the latest Twilight films that were coming out, thinking. I'm never going to be seen. Like, I'm nobody from England and, you know, who's this kid? Um, or not kid, I was in my 30s at the time. Um, and uh, and two weeks later, I got a call saying, you've got the part. I did an audition. I, did, I sent yeah, in a this, tape. This, this is, I've, I'm, I'm always interested in that. Yeah. You read about this, actors putting themselves on tape. How, how does that physically work? You set a camera up and you... Yep, I set a camera up. Um I had my mate Daniel um, was in town. I said, Daniel, can you come and help me? Um, I was uh, had a little studio in Southwark at the time that I, I just moved into. Um, 
and uh, and we sort of set up a camera and filmed it and I sent it off and two weeks later I had to pack up the little studio because I realized I'd be gone for like eight months so um wow. yeah so it was but those films came out at the same time so one was this massive sort of you know teenage YA um franchise which had which every you know had this huge following and the other was this um you know off uh, off the beaten track um imaginative um brilliant sort of indie film and because they came out at the same time it was harder to pigeonhole me but it meant that i th- i think i got into rooms because of that that i'd never been in before and people didn't quite know where to place me so had it just been twilight i'm sure i would have gone up for maybe more you know sort of Twilighty stuff, or you know, you know, <laughs> within stuff that world, with vampires and werewolves. Yeah, that's and kind. Of, but actually, that's sort of the that's the way it often works. And had it just been Kill List, I think I would have just gone up for you know more maybe horror stuff. But because they both came out, um, yeah, I, I think it. I think it meant that you know all of a sudden I'd been in a big franchise film, Tick. Um, that's always good for investors. And I'd also done this quirky indie film that you know was kind of critically recognised. Yeah. So it was like, oh, she could, she can maybe act as well, maybe. <laughs> so, and I think, so yeah, that for that for me was my, was what I feel changed everything, and oh, I'm fant- well, hugely I, grateful. I want to talk to you in a minute about two rather enormous TV shows uh, that you've been in, but before I need to throw a quote at Danny. Mm. Oh yeah, now there's, there's a lot of research goes into this. I'm going to throw some re- now. A couple of years ago in the Radio Times, you said that you weren't very interested in period dramas and historical dramas. Do you still stand by that, Mr. Brocklehurst? I'm nervous about where unless this is going. Unless they're in Manchester, obviously, and then you'll be snapping them up. No, not a fan. Um, well, I think I just want to sort of be clear on what I meant. In in in. <laughs> Your Don't cut yourself out of work now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, I'm not a big fan of things that are set in like. The, the, the kind of proper period drama so you're having to kind of get the bonnets and get dressed up and it's like you know it's all a long time ago it i know they put very popular but it's just it's just not for me and i've got no real interest in writing that stuff but is that but okay but you'd write something say in the 60s oh yeah, yeah so yeah, it's, yeah. it's the crinoline isn't it it's, it's the co- yeah. it, it's the top hats you can't be doing I think, with. I th- you know what i would even write something i would even write something a long time in the past i just i've just got to feel that there's a connection to there's a contemporary sort of nature to it. So if it was something that was set way in the past but had a real contemporary resonance, I could probably get together with it. But I think what what starts to happen is I, I can't connect with those 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 dramas and, and I just start to see famous actors in, in funny costumes <laughs> speaking in, in like dressing up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, obviously, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm raising this issue because, Miana, you've been involved in two enormously successful period dramas, Downton Abbey and Ripper Street. Very different. I apologise. Very different no, dramas. No, 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 I don't want to, no, I don't want to no. drive a wedge between the two of you. That's not what I'm Fist here for. cuffs. No. Um, I've got but, more time for one of those than the other. Let's put it, let's leave it at that. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. We won't go any further than that. But, down, I mean, Downton Abbey was enormous, clearly enormous. So how is it, how is it playing a Character like Edna Braithwaite, knowing that there's 10 million, 11 million people hanging on your hanging on your every word every Sunday night. I think I was really naive. I didn't even think that was the case. I th- I think I've always seen my. This might sound a bit weird. When I was doing it, I saw myself as being very much a um, a guest actor and a guest part character that was coming in to um, sort of fill in a little slot for a while, um, and. And so I don't. I didn't feel any pressure. 
I just, I felt like a kid in a candy shop. You know, I got to go get on the set and, you know, hang out with these actors that I really admired and, uh, you know, and I, I loved it. And I felt no pressure whatsoever. And I feel actually in a way... I mean, I know I got a bit of flack that I noticed in terms of I'd get sort of tweets and people saying, you know, I hate, I hate Miana Buring. She's so evil. And I'd be like, mm, hang on a sec, you know. She's no, so no, evil. You don't know Miana Buring. <laughs> You're talking about Edna Braithwaite in Downton Abbey, which is a character, um, you know, if you take it up with the writers always, you know, but um, so stuff like that would happen. But. But that doesn't bother me. But That's... did it change? I mean, did did the atmosphere on set change as it as it became very obvious this thing was like a, a, a runaway, you know, runaway machine? I think because I came in the third season, and by then it had already picked up. So right. I think everybody who was there and established knew that it was a major thing, um, and I think their lives had changed. They were starting to notice the change, and I think season three, season four, because obviously, the, you know, they were flying out to America and doing all the American shows, and that's quite a major thing you know you feel like there's a difference in your career and again it's a thing where you end up in rooms that you wouldn't have got into before um and I sort of feel like I was on the periphery of that so I got to really enjoy it and enjoy lots of perks because of it but I wasn't in that kind of central frenzy of it right um, I feel and well and, so aside from having to explain the very concept of fiction to people on Twitter um <laughs> were you were you sad to leave the show um, well, again, I always thought that I, I sort of knew because I was doing Ripper Street, so I was contracted to Ripper Street. So I was going to come in for a Christmas special. That was it. And then I got a call saying, would I come back? Uh, and I said, yes, but I, I couldn't come back permanently because I was doing Ripper Street. So um, very sweetly, Julian um, Fellows agreed that he'd write he'd write my character back in for three or four part. Uh, I think, yeah, three or four episodes. So I thought that was incredibly generous. So it meant that, you know, I got to do this one off and then kind of come back. And by that point, it felt, you know, it felt like family and a set that I knew and a character that I got to sort of explore a bit more. And it, yeah, it's always, I think it's always great to play because, you know, no one's out and out evil. That just, I, I don't think that's, that is very rare um, in life and also in fiction. But um, but I think somebody who, who commits acts or, or behaves in a way that's, you know, morally questionable, I think that's so interesting to play. And, well, you know, there's that. always an excuse for why they might do it, but it's it's just much more interesting to delve into that than to, you know, be the sugary Well, it's sugary a per- perfect point to talk about Long Susan then yeah. in, in uh, Ripper Street, a very ambiguous character, shall we say. Where do you think she, where do you think she was by the end? I mean, what... Oh, you see, because for me, again, you know, playing playing a character, you always defend your character. So for me, I, I, I feel that... I mean, my heart broke for her at the end because I feel that she was always remorseful. She never set out to um, to hurt people who didn't deserve to be hurt. She, she, you know, she set out to take, you know, take over an an empire in a man's world, and she set out to hurt her father, um, who was an incredibly cruel man. Um, she never set out to, you know, to kill innocent people. That, you know, that was never her intention. Um, but then, of course, um, you know, uh, that's ultimately what happened. She was responsible for the death of lots of people, and I think she was very remorseful. Um, but I think because her intentions were good, I think it was easier for her to sort of uh, protect, you know, protect her, her family and her child, and for that to be her motivation, as you know, as opposed to saying yes, you know take me to prison and kill me immediately that wouldn't you know she 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 felt that she um could maybe maybe not be forgiven but definitely she felt that she had a reason to fight for her son and her family she yeah 
Well, so both, I mean, both very interesting roles to play, obviously, and 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 both shows that were dealing with you know uh, with the class that had political elements, um, and you know were both set in in different periods when when women's roles in society were changing. So back to you, Mr. Brocklehurst, has your has your opinion of period drama changed at all in the last five minutes? Let's do period drama. Um, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> You are so entitled to that opinion. You are. Now, look, we, we, we will be talking a lot more to Danny and Miana uh, more after the break. But before then, it's that time in the show when our roving reporter goes out and about to bring you more of the best crime fiction and TV crime dramas. So with that, it's over to our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons. What have you got for us, Paul? Yes, thanks, Mark. Now, seeing as you've been talking to Danny and Miana about ice creams, it's put me in a bit of a summary mood. So I thought I'd don my metaphorical budgie smugglers, order a cheap pina colada and slather myself in Factor 30. Yes, it's that time of the year when people are looking to take something away with them on holiday to read by the pool or on the beach. Now, in the crime genre, there have already been dozens of fantastic books released this year that would easily qualify for a good summer read. And I'm taking it that you've already read some of our guests like Ian Rankin, Belinda Bauer, Sarah Hillary, Sarah Pinbra, Bill Beverly, Megan Abbott and Laura Lippman's latest. But we wanted to give you some ideas of other books to take away with you on holiday. So me and Joel are here in our decidedly unsummary studio. Give us a wave, Joel. Ready to run down a stab in the dark's top summaries. Joel, hit the music. So, in no particular order, let's start with The Dry by Jane Harper. It starts when Luke Hadler turns a gun on his wife and child and then himself in a small Australian town called Kiwara. When federal police investigator Aaron Fork returns for the funerals, he's not that keen to get involved. But sure enough, he gets dragged into the investigation to the point where he begins to doubt Luke Hadler's murder-suicide charge. And as Fork probes deeper into the killings, old wounds start bleeding into fresh ones and long-buried secrets begin to bubble up to the surface. Next in our top summer reads is The Marsh King's Daughter by Karen Dion. When the notorious child abductor known as the Marsh King escapes from a maximum security prison, Helena immediately suspects that she and her two young daughters are in danger. And no one, not even her husband, knows the truth about Helena's past. They don't know that she was born into captivity, that she had no contact with the outside world before the age of 12, or that her father raised her to be a killer. Next, we have friend of A Stab in the Dark, Mel McGrath, who's back with psychological thriller Give Me the Child. Dr Cat Lupo aches for another child, despite the psychosis which marked her first pregnancy. So when Ruby Winter, a small girl in need of help, arrives in the middle of the night, it seems like fate. But as the events behind Ruby's arrival emerge, her mother's death, her connection to Cat... Cat questions whether her decision to help Ruby has put her own daughter at risk. And when she starts to research Ruby, she can't believe what she's found. Next up is Fierce Kingdom by Jin Phillips. 
So this is an incredibly nervy book and takes place in real time between 4.55 and 8.05pm on one day when Mum Joan and her young son are just leaving the zoo. When they hear popping sounds, she soon discovers that they aren't balloons but gunshots. That four hours sees Joan do everything she can to protect her son from the bad guys inside the zoo. Our final book of our summer read selection is Lie With Me by Sabine Durant. Even though it was released last year, it's still perfect for taking away with you on your summer jolts. And some would say it's still the perfect holiday read because, well, it takes place on a holiday. It tells the story of Paul, a failed novelist and now freeloader, who's invited by an old university friend to go on holiday to Greece with them and some other families. And that's when the fun really begins. You won't want to accept a free holiday to Greece again. Well, you probably will, let's face it. And that's it. I could have mentioned Matt Veselowski's Six Stories or Steph Broadrib's Deep Down Dead or Peter James's new Roy Grace novel, Need You Dead. Or if you like your Nordic noir, Arnalda Indridesen's The Shadow District or Joan Esbo's The Thirst, but I'll leave it there. So while I go and get a Solera and try to get a good spot by the pool, it's back to you, Mark, in the studio. Thanks, Paul. Well, we're back now with our special guests, Danny Brocklehurst and Miana Brewing, and we will be talking uh, quite a lot about BBC One's forthcoming drama, In the Dark, which Danny has adapted from books by some crime writer or other, and in which Miana stars as lead character Helen Week. Just before we do that, I'm going to throw another quote at you now, Danny, um, uh, which I found very interesting. You said, and this is 12 years ago, so, you, you know, but you did say, in our world-weary times, television has lost the power to shock. Oh, and you yes. were talking. You were talking remember, about some of your heroes, like Dennis, this. Dennis yes. Potter, and stuff. Where do you think we are now with TV drama? I mean, do you think has it upped its game when it comes to to, to being, you know, a thought-provoking uh, genre, uh, a shocking genre? Are there any real auteurs left? Where are we? Where are we now? State of the nation address, Danny. Gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I think things have changed a lot since I... I th- was that a piece I wrote for The Guardian or something? I seem to remember it, it was around this shameless time, wasn't it? I can't yeah. remember. Um, but, yeah, I think... I mean, I think television is is has really moved on. I mean, in the last um, 10 years, you know, the way, the way that television has, has changed and become the, the kind of... the medium of choice for people who actually want to author work now you know much more than film i would i would i would argue at the moment um and particularly some of the things that happen in you know in, in american cable tv and, and and obviously over here as well um it's it's incredible what you can what you can attempt now and what you can try and you know put onto tv screens i mean yeah i don't know where to start really no, with, exactly with that discussion a big a big a big answer but yeah. but no we are i think we are in a very interesting place um Obviously, you've you've done uh, uh, loads of original drama. What's it like to sit down and adapt work? What's what's the key difference? I mean, apart from the obvious one um, that you know you start with with a novel or whatever. Do you just get out that big red pen? Is that the first thing I'm going to get my nice new red pen and just put lines through all the stuff I don't need? Um, yeah, you do that definitely. <laughs> uh, Try and work out where the plot holes are, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, that, oh hey, that hurts. Hey. That hurts. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I think on, I think, you, you know, I think on one level, it's it's easier because you've obviously got the story there and the characters, and you know, you, you, you 
when you're doing an original piece, you've always got the sort of, you know, the, the gaping sort of blank sheet of paper that you've got, you know, that you've got to fill. And yeah. even if you've written episode one, you've still got a number of episodes and you think, how are we going to end this thing? And, you know, that can be very stressful. Whereas at least, at least when you're adapting a, um, a novel, you've got a framework, even if you're going to change things, you know, you've got a framework. And, and what I usually do is either, either myself or usually get somebody else to do it is, um, you do a chapter breakdown, so you've got a kind of, you know, a sort of map of the novel, if you right. like. And then you try and work out how that's going to fit together as a TV piece. And then, you know, that's just about me trying to use my television skills to work out how this story is going to work in however many hours we're telling it over and what we need to exclude, change, keep, you know, enhance, whatever. But what's interesting to me is that there are, I do know writers who have been involved in that. The, the, the originators of the material. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a massive mistake. I, th- I think that process that you're talking about, I don't think the, the writer of the novel can have any part in that. I think it would be a massive mistake. Do you not think? I mean, you, you know, it's, you're too close to it. You can't, you know, you go, no, you can't lose that. Oh, no, you can't lose it. You've got to let someone who's removed from it and who also has done it before and knows what they're doing to do that stuff. I, I think so. I think it's difficult. And uh, I think, I think... The, I think the, the thing about being too close to it is definitely is definitely something that needs to be taken into consideration. You know, you you spent a lot of time writing that story once as a novel, um, yeah. and I think to then go through and try and do it again, um, you know, somehow objectively to turn it into a, a yeah. into a different medium, I think is a very tricky task. Would it be Would it be off putting for you if somebody came to you and said, "We want you to adapt this. It's a great novel. We want you to adapt it." The writer novel wants to be really, really involved. Would that would that kind of sound alarm bells for you a bit? Um, I think you'd have to define what that meant, really. Yeah, yeah. Sitting behind you while yeah, you're yeah, yeah. looking over your shoulder. Yeah, it, it might ring a few alarm bells. I mean, I don't know. You know, I think I might have said this to you when we started out on this process. But you know, this is this is what stays with me about adaptation, and I think I'm correctly attributing this to Simon Beaufoy, who, when he was adapting. Um, uh, I think it was was it called Q was it called Q and A the the novel that turned out to be Slumdog Millionaire right whatever it was called anyway um, he sat down with the author of that book um, and said all I can promise is that I will keep the spirit Absolutely. of your book yeah um, and he made a lot of changes and it became you know obviously this massive film but he kept absolutely the spirit of that original novel yeah no and and that is the important thing I mean we. You know, we did work reasonably closely on it. You would send me scripts, I would feed stuff back. You, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of ego flying about, which I think was a very yeah. very good thing on either side. Um, but there were times when I would see a script, and there's one without giving anything away, one one very major change in terms of a, of a character's father, of Helen's father. We don't, it's not giving anything away. But I remember turning the page and reading that and going, "Whoa, Danny!" <laughs> and then just and but. It works. I mean, you just go, you know, I think with all these things, when, when you get uh, emails or whatever from people going, why did that change to that? And why? And you go, because there was, wasn't a good reason. Why not? You know, I mean, if it, if it works, it works. And it's a different thing. And, and I think often, often people who've read the books and then see the TV things don't make, don't, don't make that leap. You know, it's almost like they're sitting there watching with the book in front of them, yeah. going, "Oh, it's changed now." Yeah. It doesn't yeah. say that, which is what I find if very. If anybody odd. does that on this project, they'll be in for quite a few shocks. They in for, they're in for a lot of <laughs> they're in for a lot of shocks. Um, now uh, we're going to talk about Helen Weeks, obviously, Miana, and and there's there's a lot of female detectives on TV at the moment, major female characters. Yeah. Um, what did you? What, what were your first impressions of Helen when you when you first read the script? 
Because obviously uh, you read Danny's script before you went back to the books. Yes, I did. Right. Yeah, I did. You and did I, that in the wrong order. I know, right? Order, but... ah, that's where I went wrong. <laughs> that's why. Um, I did because I thought this is that was sort of the Bible that I would be working off initially. You know, those those were the lines that I'd be speaking. Those were the situations I'd be in. So I always I always think whenever I do anything, I always use the script that I have as as the springboard. Um, but it was but it's always a joy to have. Um, the possibility to go and do further research because normally you have the script and that gives you all the information and then any holes that you need filled in you just have your own imagination to do that with or research or whatever but this time there was there were your novels as well which was great because obviously then you get the no with novels you have a kind of running monologue um, that's that's quite useful that kind of gives you a sense of how they think and how they speak and then you try and merge that with what's on you know what's in the script. Uh, but she does follow, I mean, she's very similar in, in a lot of ways to the characters you were describing before. There's, there, there are a lot of secrets, there are a lot of ambiguities about the character. It, I guess it's an obvious question, but those are the characters that, that actors are always attracted to, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Come on. You want a bit, you know, you want to play with levels and you want to have, you want to have skeletons in the closet. And, and crucially pregnant. Crucially, Crucially, she is pregnant. a bit pregnant. Yes, uh, just now a bit. We, just a bit. Now we see the full. We see the full pregnancy in episodes three and four. But what are the what are the physical challenges of playing a woman who's heavily pregnant? I mean, you know, obviously there's the there's the prosthetic sort of baby bump and stuff. But there's more than that going on, right? Well, it's just it's just to kind of make it feel believable that she's pregnant. You know, because you know, having just the image of a pregnant woman, I think creates a vulnerability um, for the viewer, which I think is quite interesting. Um, but in playing that, you just want to make sure that you're not, um, you know, it's just making, you know, with Helen, I just, it was making choices that would mean she wasn't a woman who during pregnancy couldn't move. She could move. She could, you know, did she... Um, she wasn't bedridden. She could move. She, you know, she wasn't uh, even at eight months. She was quite agile, really, and she needed to be that in order to do all the things she needs to do in the script. But then it was finding how to do that so it kind of looked believable. Um, you know, there'd be some scenes where I'd go, "Oh no, I'm, you know, I moved. I moved like a non-pregnant woman there. <laughs> I need to let's go back. Let's let let me just waddle a little bit more." Or, um, you know, I remember like the the bath scene, like slipping in the bath. I, I had a. A friend of mine came round and I said, show me how as a pregnant woman you would slip in a, you know, or like you might get in and out of a bath rather. And, um, so hang on, whoa, 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 I've got to stop you here. You asked, I presume, a pregnant friend. Uh, yes, well, a friend who had been pregnant several said, times. can you and, come over and get in the bath for me? Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, she was fully clothed. There was no water in the bath, but yes. Oh, I see. I, so I just, but I needed to, I needed to be able to see her get in and out um, of the bath just to make that sort of believable. Yeah, okay. so that, yeah, so that's, so I, I did stuff like that and I got, you know, I got pregnant friends to um, stand up and sit down for me so I could watch how they stood up and like watch their centre of gravity. And then I just, like I've said this, but I just cherry picked what would work for Helen, what yeah. would be right for the script and then ran There with are that. still people who treat pregnant women like they're ill. Yeah, and they're know, not. And then you they, get Serena yeah. Williams <laughs> yeah, coming yeah. along and winning a grand slam a while she's pregnant. Absolutely. You know, and there's some women who are ill and, you know, I, I, I personally couldn't do what um, what Helen could do like in the first few months at all. I was bedridden, but but Helen wasn't. And, and it's true that, you know, she's not ill. She's strong and she's feisty just as much as she was before she was pregnant. But I do think that that visual is really strong. There's some even, you know, playing her, I felt really... I felt very protective of her as her bump grew. 
Well, now that you've now that you've mentioned your own. Uh, yes, I have. Sorry, your own <laughs> pregnancy. Yeah. No, but we can we can now at least let let listeners know that the little little squeaks and and moans you're hearing are not they're not me or Danny. Um, <laughs> they're not there's me. A, there is there's a small baby in very like a, as opposed to a massive baby. There's a very tiny baby uh, in the room. Um, it it strikes me that the the renaissance of the sort of whole female led detective show was probably kickstarted by Scandinoirs like like The Killing and The Bridge. Um, now, as someone born in Sweden, are you, are you surprised that the Brits have have taken and Scandinavian-based drama so much to our hearts, and that's in, in novels as well as on TV. No, I'm not surprised, but partly because I think Brits have always been um, uh, culturally fascinated by the sort of thriller and detective stories that's existed long before these particular Scandi stories came along. Um, and as have Scandinavian, I mean, Scandinavians, they have a long history of long love affair with that genre too. But these particular stories that came out, The Killing and The Bridge, they are brilliant. They're, they are fantastic. And I think a good story translates. You're gonna, you, you will want to watch it. And I think we have um, a very... Um, because of Britain's sort of his, long history of great television, I think we have a very discerning audience. They, you know, they are, they're sophisticated. They, they like great storytelling. And when it's out there, it doesn't matter if it's subtitled. And I thought that, I think that's what was interesting and the difference this time was that audi- audiences were willing to watch a great story despite having to read subtitles. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I'd, obviously, I think uh, that fascination you, you talked about is there with the landscape as much as anything, because it, to, to, to people in this country, it's such an odd landscape. To people who take their holidays in Spain and France or whatever, Scandinavian landscapes are, are kind of strange. And let's be honest, blood looks pretty good against snow. Um, but, it, but, it's, but it's obviously more than that. It's, it's the characters. I mean, Sarah London and Saginaw, great, strong characters and long-form drama. You Absolutely. Know? And I think I think that's what was interesting within the dark for me as well was that I, I felt that the, like in those um, in those stories every character that's introduced to you has a background, they have a history. You can feel it, you can taste it. They're not just, you know, they're not just kind of stocking fillers to or to there to propel a bit of plot line. They they've got meat to their bones even if they have you know three lines. And I think um, you know, for me, that's a test of test of you know great script and great storytelling. That that is the truth, and and I think that they had that, and I, th- I feel that in the dark has that too, and that's what I loved when I read it and got involved. And obviously, it does in a way have a history because it's because of the books. These aren't characters that just sprung out of you know a couple of weeks ago. They they are sprung. They've been around for years, and I think they've, <laughs> they've, they've been marin- with us you know, for decades. They've marinated, you know. <laughs> Marinated and rotted. Yeah. Um, but but uh, so uh, new life, I think, has has been breathed into into British crime drama. Obviously, Danny, you write a lot of other things aside from from genre stuff, um, from crime like crime drama, like like In the Dark. But it has become hugely successful. Obviously, with two episodes, probably by the time this goes out, into In the Dark, and I hope it's massively successful. Obviously, we all do. Um, but when something becomes successful, like British crime drama. Do you think there can be too much of it? I mean, it, it does seem to be everywhere. And the same is true with, with books and with movies. And Of does course. It, does it get on your wick? <laughs> there, of course, can be too much of it. And, and I, think, um, I think that is the, the sort of easy criticism that, that does get levelled at, at new <clears throat> shows, you know, when... 
when they come out and, you know, the critics are like, oh, here's another, yeah. you know. Oh, here's another Maverick cop. Here's a, you oh. know, here's another Maverick cop. Here's yeah. another, you But know, do, what do you want? A not, un, not Maverick cop? So why, actually, I'm I don't think sure, Helen I'm, is a Maverick. In the, not in that sense. She's not like, she's not like, I'm going to do this, whatever you say. I'm yeah. going to, you know, she doesn't have, there are secrets. There are certainly yes. secrets. But it's not like, you know, she she's drinking heavily and listening to particularly quirky music or any of that stuff. That, um, we missed a trick there, guys. Yeah, I know, I know. What quirky music would we... we should, I don't know. Maybe she's a secret Morris dancer. Absolutely like. she is. That would have been good to right? do, wouldn't it? Can't yeah. Morris dance pregnant? Yes. Can you? Can you? Of course you can, yeah. Of course you can. I'm sure you'd have carried yes, it off. Can. Helen could have. <laughs> she could have. Um, now, one of the criticisms that's often levelled at some TV crime drama is uh, the degree of what's often seen as gratuitous violence. Um... Do you think that's fair? And and where do you both come at that from, both as a writer and actor? Danny first. Well, I think I mean I think that's a fair a fair criticism um, because I think sometimes the violence as as portrayed can be over the top. But you know, I think as a as a as a program maker, you've got to try and assess where you need to use extreme extreme violence and where other things can be suggested you know i i'm a big i'm a big fan of, of the suggestion and, and the audience filling filling more. in the gap yeah less is more absolutely but you know there are times when you do need to show some things i mean there's there is a, without giving anything away there is a, there is a scene in in the in the, the second story of in the dark which is you know it's quite rough um but you know, I think you've just got to pick and choose. You've got to kind of choose your moment of, of, of when to shock an audience and when to, to, you know, and when to hold back, I think. And is that something that you are are looking at very much when you're reading scripts? If if something, if you do perceive something as being gratuitous and violent, will you will you speak up? Will you not do it? Will you? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I always be on my mind. <laughs> yeah. Really? I don't hold back. Um, yeah, no, I do. I do. Um, I think... Um, and I completely agree with you, Danny, that it's sort of, um, yeah, show, show, um, suggest, you, you, suggestion is, is very powerful. And, and every now and again I watch things and I just feel like it's somebody who's grown up in a very safe environment who has no real understanding of what the consequences of violence actually are. You have to have respect for that because, you know, if you're telling a story about real violence and, and face it, you are in, in these, you know, detective stories. We're not, you know, it's not like somebody stole my teddy bear. Right. It's, that's not the story. Um, but, you know, violence is, is is a horrendous thing and you have I think you have to have respect for it. But that's what you've got to show rather than yeah. not necessarily the violence itself. It's very... it's. You, it's not about showing what violence looks like, but, mm. but about what violence feels like. You know, what it does Absolutely, to those characters. Absolutely, yeah, that's well put, actually. Um, so what's next for you both? Obviously, In the Dark is is big in all our lives at the minute, but what's next for you both? Danny? Um, well, I'm doing another show for BBC, which um, is called Come Home, which hasn't got... Uh, hasn't got a dead body in it. No. There's no, there's no police in it. Not even one. Not no, no, nothing. No, no I know, I know. Well, how are we, we, just how like we gonna do find the drama? Just like come, like do like walk on sort of police parts in the background. <laughs> yeah, <just laughs> that'd be fine, right? They won't. Nobody commits any kind of crime of any. No, overdue no. library books. Nothing. No. no. Okay. Yeah, Ooh. I know. It's going to be All really right. dramatic. Huh? Crazy man. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's 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 a. Um, it's a family. It's a. It's about a family. It's about a mother who walks out on her kids, and it's about the consequences of that on a family. And it's very, very emotional. And um, 
you know, the BBC sort of sort of sort of gave us the, the you know, I pitched the idea, and the BBC kind of gave us the challenge, which is which is fantastic of of, of just making it as emotional and characterful as we could, um, because I think you know, go to go back to your earlier point, I think they feel that brilliant as crime drama is, and, and certainly it pulls the ratings, you know, often. Um, they need to sort of shake up their schedules and, and offer different things and different tones and different moods, you know, which is fair enough. And what about you, Miana? Obviously, there's a, a small person to take into consideration. To, but what, to keep alive, yeah. Yeah, but have you got something um, on the horizon? Yeah, I'm maybe, I may be going to Norway to do a, uh, a, a ten-parter with... Um, uh, with a director writer who's become a friend as well, um, and I think that's part of the sort of draw is that I really I really love the group of people who are doing it, and it's it's for me they feel like quite a family sort of atmosphere, and um, yeah we'll see. <laughs> I wasn't expected to maybe go back to work that soon, but I sort of yeah again I think it's part of that graft and being a freelancer you, you just you're not used to saying no. Oh it's hard. We've got to learn. We've got to learn. No. But I think I think it'll be fun. It'll be an adventure. Well, now, as promised in each episode, we ask our guests to, to come along with their recommendations for a good read and a good watch. Let's start with you, Danny. What have you read recently that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? You, you could have told me you were going to ask me that. I could have thought about it. Well, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to put you on the spot. Then it just becomes, <laughs> then it just becomes a sort of, get yeah, that, I must recommend that. It's a gut reaction. Um, well, the, uh, Doesn't have to be recently. Just no, a, book, no, no, a book you'd like to recommend. Well, you know what? I've just, I've just read the, um, the, the, the Phil Spector biography. Um, which I thought was unbelievable. It was a, a, an astonishingly good read. I mean, you know, the the guy who invented the uh, the Wall of Sound, then produced the Beatles, and then obviously killed someone in, in his own home. And uh, you know, it was. <laughs> yeah. Kind of... Have you seen that bizarre movie with Al Pacino? I, I haven't seen it, but it made me want to watch. Strangest wigs yeah. you've ever seen playing. It's absolutely bonkers. But yeah, and it's it, yeah, it's an astonishing story. I mean, you know, and the court case is astonishing, and and yeah, it's it's, it's a really yeah, it's a really good biography. Okay, what about something to watch? Um, leftovers. Big fan of the Leftovers. Nobody really watches it. Um, it's it was it's made for HBO. I think the show on Sky over here, and I just think it's astonishing. I mean, it's it's quite high concept, um, but yeah, it, it's storytelling unlike anything else. Okay, Leftovers. Now, Miana, what about what about something to read that you'd like to recommend? So I recently finished Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Um, which I thought was incredible and should just be it's a compulsory read in every classroom. Um, and then watching-wise, I have just finished the entire series of Breaking Bad. Oh, right. Uh, so I'm, right yeah, the way through. Right the way through. So I'd sort of watched the first two series and then kind of f- forgot about it years ago and then came back to it. And it's great it is isn't it it's really good and it's for storytelling and breaking down storytelling it's it's just yeah it's fantastic yeah. i love i, I, I am really the one it. who knocks yeah um, yeah so. oh, and i just hate him so much at the end and then i they managed to make you love him again what oh. what 
There yeah. you go. Well, some fantastic recommendations there. That is about it uh, for this episode of Stab in the Dark. We've learned all sorts of things. We've learned that Danny has a problem with kind of top hats and crinoline, that kind of thing, and that uh, once in a while, Miana claps is surrounded by cushions. Um, we will be back again next time, where we'll be at the Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival in Harrogate to meet internationally best-selling author and creator of the Jack Reacher series, Lee Child. In the meantime, you can find out more about A Stab in the Dark at uktv.co.uk slash a stab in the dark or get in touch with us on twitter hashtag a stab in the dark plus don't forget to subscribe and review us on your podcast app i know i always say it but your feedback really does make a difference so if you like the show rate and review us say something nice and i'll buy you a strawberry mivy if you say something nasty well you might not like where i'll be sticking that chalk ice and just a quick reminder you can watch the very best crime drama every day on uk tv channels alibi and drama so with that it's a huge thank you to my very special guests danny brocklehurst and miana buring and and thanks to our producers, Paul Hirons, Joel Porter and John Lemon. My name is Mark Billingham and thanks for listening. 